Welcome to Bottomless Broadway, where we talk musicals over mimosas and maybe even plays sometime in the future. But for now, we're going to go through most of this year's Tony eligible musicals. I'm Cindy, and I'm here with my co host, Christine. Hi, today, kicking off our series, we're going to be talking about two shows that deal with similar themes but in different ways The Prom and Head Over Heels. So, since we are talking through these shows, there might be minor spoilers, but nothing that should ruin The Prom for you if you plan on seeing that in the future. For Head Over Heels, we will be talking a little more in depth, so there might be more spoilers, but since it's no longer running, hopefully that won't be a big issue. So, Christine, how do you feel about the prom? I really liked it. I think it is solidly in the running for best musical so far that has already opened. I think if we only took the musicals that are around right now, it would pretty easily win. For people that haven't seen this show, how would you describe prom? In five words or less. Fun and gay, but not overbearing. Wait, no, that's six words, is it? Fun and gay, not overbearing. Five words. (laughs) I'm going to say you, me, and a prom. Okay. I have very strong feelings about this later on. All right. So what was the prom about? The Prom is a musical based on a true story in Mississippi, but set in Indiana. I'm not sure if that has to do with the fact that Indiana is so famous for its Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. But anyways, it centers around a girl named Emma who wants to go to her high school prom with her girlfriend, Alyssa Green, daughter of every family movie's villain, the PTA president mom. Prom is canceled chaos ensues but with the support of school principal mr hawkins emma's story makes the news just in time for slightly past their prime caricature broadway stars Dee Dee allen and barry glickman to witness their expectedly hit musical about eleanor roosevelt close on opening night compelled to find some chicken soup for their diva souls the stars gather together a rescue team and head down to indiana where they teach the students and faculty at emma's high school how to dream big and accept others while being reminded themselves the importance of staying genuine and grounded all right, that's where the pleasantries end. Let's talk about the story. Let's talk about the book. Okay. It is based on a true story, like I said, but I actually found it kind of unpredictable. I mean, the false ending at the end of Act 1 completely threw me off. Yeah, that definitely I did not see coming. They performed on the Macy's Day Parade, which they had the kiss between Emma and Alyssa at the end, and that was like the first LGBT kiss that was ever broadcast at all the like middle American conservative moms were mad about this being on a family show. (laughs) Do they realize it's about them? (laughs) Yeah. So the thing they did was they performed um, Time to Dance on the Macy's Parade, which is the last song in the show. It's the finale. You know, if they want the kiss, like that's good for everyone in the LGBT ally. But also I felt like it kind of showed us where it was leading Like, I guess it's not that big of a deal because they're not going to have this whole show and then have it be like, oh, and then prom was canceled for everyone. But it kind of ruined how they solved their issue. By the end of Act 1, we get like a new conflict. But then once we know that new conflict, having known the context of the last song, I could kind of figure out how they were going to solve that. I thought it was crazy, but apparently like the parents planning something behind Emma's back was actually true. Oh, so tell us about the actual story then. The real girl's name is Constance McMillan, and she actually was a lot more proactive about it than Emma. Um, She called upon the ACLU to sue the school district. They ended up paying her $35,000 and implementing a sexual orientation non-discrimination policy. 
and there were no Broadway stars coming to their rescue. And her principal was kind of a dick, too. So, like, the principal wasn't on her side. But she did show up on Ellen DeGeneres, and she got another $30,000. Wow, that's like two years of college paid off. Yeah. So the real story is they originally said that they would hold a private prom and invite Constance. Five people showed up. Her, her girlfriend, and then three other people that apparently had learning problems. Also, it was held at a furniture market. Okay, strange, but all right. That should be like a hint. Like, oh, it's at a furniture market? I shouldn't go. That's a fake prom. Yeah. Also, you know how you mentioned Indiana and they changed it from Mississippi to Mm -hmm. Indiana? Originally, this guy, Jack Viertel, he found out about this story. And there's like multiple stories, but he's like a big dude around Broadway. He wrote a book called The Secret Life of the American Musical, which I actually thought was fascinating. He's credited with the concept of this. Like, it's literally in the credits of this show. But then in December, one of the songwriters, Chad Beglin, said in an interview to NBC, and he said, I have a message for Mike Pence, quote, I think you really need to come and see the prom. And also, we said it in Indiana because of you. (laughs) Oh, so it is. Yeah. Okay. The way that the book was changed by adding the Broadway stars, Dee Dee and Barry, how did you feel about that? I think that was great because it really caters to the Broadway fans. and It's so, so geared towards Broadway fans. That one song that the principal sings. Okay, so the principal is a huge fan of Dee Dee Allen, right? Right. He sings that one song that literally no one remembers called <laughs> We Look To You, where he's basically like, my sad, depressing life working in an office as a principal, my only escape is Broadway, was like a Broadway blowjob. I mean, it wasn't as good as other Broadway blowjobs, like, Broadway baby from the Follies Mm -hmm. but like it was very evident it was like this is the I love Broadway song of this (laughs) musical yeah basically and a lot of Dee Dee Allen songs are riffs off of other musicals and show them as like people who were doing it for all the wrong reasons they only want buzz and like the very shallow side of both social media and like liberals Mm -hmm. who are just like let's find some cause to fix and it's in one of the lyrics like we're gonna help this girl whether she wants it or not and it's funny because when they burst onto the scene the principal is basically handling it like kind of well like he almost has the parents like on his side and then they like come in and ruin everything well i i really like their addition because beth level as Dee allen is so so charismatic and she has a lot of performance songs which is why i think that when i first watched the prom i didn't even notice emma and Alyssa's songs because yeah. they're songs that you you listen to right very ballad right Dee allen has all these big performance songs that are really funny and she does crazy dances and there's a lot going on on stage so i was like beth level is clearly the star of this show when emma was eligible for lead actress nomination I was kind of surprised because she just didn't really leave to an impression on me but then I was listening to the soundtrack and I like her songs on the soundtrack a lot more they're like very very easy to listen to and they're very sweet and she has a super crisp voice and then Beth's songs are harder to listen to Mm -hmm. on the soundtrack you need the full staging and everything yeah they're not as exciting without the visuals One of my few quibbles about the show, I feel like they should have made it more centered around one character or another. They kind of tried to split the plot between the Broadway people and then the actual high school people. And they try to do it somewhat evenly, but I think it would have been better if they just went one way or another because... I didn't really mind. I don't think the high school people could have really carried the show. I think they should have just made it obvious that the Broadway people were the stars of the show because I think that's kind of what everyone considers it. It's like... 
kind of agreed upon that like Emma is the heart of the show but the Broadway people especially Beth is the star of the show like they're who you go for and all the four people playing the Broadway actors are all like Broadway alum they've been around for ages and so those are the people you would go see in the show but then you come and you find this really heartwarming story and when you're first watching the show Alyssa and Emma do kind of fade to the background they do get their moments they each get a few solos but I could see how like if you were actually in high school and actually going through something like that they would mean a lot to you yeah on the soundtrack their songs are so pretty like dance with you is so pretty and unruly heart is so 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 pretty and I also do kind of like the balance two things about the balance of the soundtrack I like the split between act one and act two I think and on a good place and the amount of happy and fast songs in each portion and the number of good versus filler songs in each act right. are really well split. The amount of Beth and Emma's songs are also really well I think well it's a pretty tight show. There's not really anything that is extra. There's an argument to be made that like all of the Broadway people songs are kind of unnecessary, but they're more just necessary for character development, just to show you how ridiculously yeah, out of touch really the characters are. I remember the Broadway people's songs. Yeah. It's Not About Me is Beth Level's first solo. The acceptance song is done by the character Trent Oliver, played by Christopher Sieber, and it's actually really funny, but also like kind of forgettable. There's a good one-liners. I don't think it's a good song. It's like not a good song to listen to, but the visuals, the way it's staged is hilarious. And they do have really good jokes in there. Right. They do uh, like a monster truck race or something, right? Yeah. And then monster so the stage goes black and then there's two monster trucks on stage. And I'm like, oh. It's a different show. My show ended. Time to leave. <laughs> I'm so confused. They also like blind you with spotlights at first too because you're at a rally. Zaz. So Zaz is done by Angie who's the perpetual chorus girl. Been in the chorus for Chicago for like 20 years and has never gotten to play Roxy Hart and she's basically does this Fosse-esque number to cheer up Emma to try to convince her that it's not the end of the world. But the thing is, Angie basically doesn't do anything else in the whole show except for that. Yeah, we don't know why she's there. But you know, she doesn't sing with her voice. She sings with her legs. Yeah, no, it's literally her her legs. Yeah, that's that's all. And it's also funny because all of these Broadway characters are basically kind of playing themselves too, except just dial up the narcissistic degree and the self-absorbedness. But like Angie, who is also played by Angie Schwarer, she basically is the ultimate chorus girl. And in an interview, and she likes doing that, I think, because I saw an article where they were like, why did you pick her for the role? And they were like, we want this role to be someone who's kind of like Angie Schwarer. Why don't we just ask her if she wants to do it? And that's how she got the role. Um, I really, really, really like Love Thy Neighbor. I think it's one of the most important songs in the show because it's basically this song where they're like, hey, stop taking every little thing from the Bible and making it your law because it's so out of date. The most important message about it is love. And I don't think enough Broadway shows do that because a lot of Broadway shows are one way or the other. Right. And a lot of queer friendly Broadway shows are like, fuck religion. Yeah. And this one, I felt like that song was so important because they were like, hey, you can be Catholic and a good person. Because like I Stephen think he Colbert. starts out with being like, hey, I'm Christian too. Like, it's not on the recording, but I want to say in the scene he does. Oh, does he? That's really cool. Um, the next song on this list is The Ladies Improving is actually my favorite Beth Lovell solo. 
And then the last Broadway star's solo is Barry's going to prom, which is so forgettable to me. I I thought it was like, really cute, actually. Um, I don't remember it audio leave. That's true. I couldn't tell you the tune, but the staging is like really cute. And he's like jumping around and rolling on the bed and, and stuff. Eating. <laughs> and eating. I mean, in general, I think this is one of the shows where it's definitely better to not listen to it before. Really? I mean, because so many of the numbers just have to be staged. I guess. But then all of Emma's songs just sound like pop love songs from That's true. a random album. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I think Unruly Heart works really great Unruly on the stage because it's kind of that Dear Evan Hansen effect where it's like you're showing like what the impact is. Right, and then all the other gay kids come out. I have one bone to pick with the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So one of the main phrases is, all we need is you and me and a song, right? Mm-hmm. Because Emma has this whole thing where she's like, I'm not trying to like start a movement or anything. I literally just want to dance with you to a song at prom. And that phrase is repeated several times throughout multiple songs on the track. Mm-hmm. And then it's repeated several times again in the finale. And from the first time they say it to the last time they say it, I was waiting and waiting and waiting for them to change the last word to all we need is you and me and a prom because oh. it would have been so cute and like cheesy, but fits so well. Right. Like I love it when you change one word. It's like, oh, it's so satisfying. Mm-hmm. I was so sure they were going to do it. It rhymes. It's funny. It's a perfect fit. In my head, I was like, what sane songwriter wouldn't do this? And I was like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then it didn't happen. I was so <laughs> mad about that. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Actually, it would have been really fun. But oh, well. Let's talk about why they couldn't promote the show. <laughs> it's it's definitely geared toward Broadway, as we mentioned. But it's not like you're going to be completely out of the loop if you've never seen another Broadway show. I think this actually would be a pretty good first Broadway show if it aligns with your politics because it shows you everything Broadway has to offer. It's not very groundbreaking, though. It's not like a show that you see and you're like, wow, musicals are insane. Well, no, like it's not. It's a good average to set your expectations at. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like it's the epitome of what a Broadway show should do. Yeah, it just kind of hits all the marks. Their playbill is super boring. And I think we disagreed on this, but like, I don't think the prom is that great of a name. Okay. If you just walked by and saw this marquee, that's a like, prom. Oh, some high school like, bullshit. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I thought it would be funny to call it Changing Lives, which is the name of the first song. Changing Lives is so dramatic. I don't think prom was the best name for promoting the show. But I like the sentiment of naming it The Prom because, you know, like back when Love, Simon came out, a lot of people were praising it for like taking the root of a regular high school rom-com and there's like, hey, here's a love story, but it's between gay people and it doesn't have to be depressing and no one has to die and no one has to sue anyone and doesn't have to go crazy. Like this is just a love story, but they're gay. And I feel like that's what the name did for me. Like The Prom is, and then Emma even says it in, it might be Dance With You, she says, I don't want to be a cautionary tale or a scapegoat or start a riot or whatever, yeah. which, like I said yeah. earlier, isn't what the actual girl did because she sued everyone. But, um, <laughs> but like, I was like, hey, I'm literally not trying to make a scene. I'm not like, wow, I'm gay and I must go to this prom. I just happen to want to go to this prom while I'm gay. What's the big deal? Right. Yeah. Like very real and also very palatable for people that might not be so for it because it's like, hey, here's just people. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's why they did make the character like that rather than the character going around and like... Right. 
That's kind of a weird choice, though. Like, that's a pretty big decision to make when they're writing the book to change her like that. Because I think the idea is to be like, hey, this is a universal story. Everyone wants to be able to go to their high school prom. Because, you know, when you're in high school, prom is like life or death situation. I don't know, man. I wore a JCPenney dress. I mean, yeah, but like, <laughs> but like literally like capital punishment in high school was you can't go to prom. It's a common high school drama trope. Any ending thoughts, special feelings? Originally, You Happened was actually only Alyssa and Emma. And I think you can watch the video for that online. Now You Happened is just like a promposal thing. Oh, really? It was like my favorite ensemble number. Also, I wasn't sure like how serious or insulting they were trying to be about the other couples. Because they were cute, but you were also like judging them. They were kind of dumb. Yeah, there was that one guy that was like, I'm a football player and I thought I had everything until I met you. And then that other guy that's like, I'm a slacker. I was failing Spanish until I met you. Yeah, and then Em and Alyssa come on and you're like, oh my god, serious people. Yeah, but I think it was really smartly done because they also do this like awesome dance, which like Casey Nicola is one of my favorite choreographers, I think, because there's like two normal couples that get like promposed to before Alyssa and Emma but Alyssa and Emma kind of have to hide behind the bleachers I guess because they're still Mm -hmm. secret and like Alyssa's not out yet right so they're not doing a big right but they still have the other couples dancing on the other side of this set piece it like made a probably sadder song feel happy so I met the dance captain Jack and his favorite dance is Zaz which is very confusing for me because Angie, I think, is the only person that dances and she spends 80% of the time on the bed. Just kicking her legs. Right. Also, if you're not Angie, you can't do it. So (laughs) (laughs) it is very like Chicago. I don't know. A lot of people really like Zaz, but, and I think it's like serviceable, but I don't think it's amazing. What was your favorite number of the whole show? Unruly Heart. Mm-hmm. I really like Tonight Belongs to You. I think that would be my favorite. It feels really basic to say that because it's such a standard song, I guess. There's nothing special about it, but it's like super catchy. The choreography is great. It's just like a great closing number because it shows a dichotomy. It's very memorable and it's very relatable. It's definitely going to be the most quoted song, I think. Oh, like it's going to be on prom merch. Yeah. Like Tonight Belongs to You is a good merch thing but then they have that like one thing's universal life's no dress rehearsal that's just gonna be the high school theater kid anthem probably all right now closing thoughts i honestly think this would be a good show for like anyone to see maybe if you're from indiana they kind of do shit on the town it's very soon for indiana remember when lemonel miranda was like oh i'm so worried about hamilton opening in london because it's gonna offend people i was like okay Uh but that was also like 250 years ago this is like 2015 (laughs) less than five years ago yeah it's pretty soon yeah so we'll see i hope it tours i think it'd be interesting if the tour has a stop in indiana i'm sure there's kids in indiana who need to see this who need to hear stuff about this but like i don't know what it's like to live i know i think overall it's one of the few musicals that i feel like i could actually just put the entire recording on a playlist and listen through it promise great go watch it our second show. I am so excited. I am. I need to pour myself some more wine. <laughs> I am so excited. All right. So our second show is Head Over Heels. Christine, tell me Head Over Heels in five words or less. Um, way too gay. 
needs work. <laughs> needs work. Cool. And oh. like, uh-huh. like I have, as we've mentioned from prom, like I have nothing against being gay. It, and we'll get into why I think it's like, quote, way too gay later. But it's just, it's a mess. It is. They they overdo it in like the worst way possible. It kind of like sets queer stereotypes back 50 years. Yeah. Do you have five words? Yes. Um, hectic, Shakespearean, sheet music ball gowns? Cool. All right. So let's go over what Head Over Heels is about. This, like, get ready. This is a lot. All right. It's a ride. Also, Buckle I'm going to pronounce everything terribly. Head Over Heels is about King Basilius of Arcadia, who hears a prophecy from a non-binary python that his wife queen gynecea and his two daughters princess pamela and philoclea will each sleep with a random person they're not married to and then the king will lose his kingdom and the beat that blesses it so remember this beat because we're going to come back to this beat to like run away from this fate the king picks up his court and leaves for the forest like he's a character from midsummer night's dream and then they're followed by musodorus princess philoclea's admirer who was turned down by the king and queen on multiple occasions as the princess's suitor on account of him being a poor shepherd so disguised as an amazon he beds the princess and inadvertently seduces the king and queen because he's wonder woman now and like (laughs) that's that's how shakespearean it is because you know you're reading shakespeare when someone who should definitely be recognized under his disguise is not recognized under his disguise. Like this guy's been friends with Princess Philoclea his whole life, right? They're like childhood sweethearts. The king and the queen know him. Then he puts on a wig and like Gal Gadot boobs. And then the king and the queen are like, wow, I need to fuck this dude. I'm going to cheat on my spouse (laughs) and fuck him. Moving on, Princess Pamela falls in love with her female handmaiden, Mopsa. So they sleep together and the king realizes that the prophecy is now fulfilled. And then the fortune-telling python comes back, turns out to be a drag queen who's teaching the king a lesson about acceptance, ushering in a new beat into the kingdom of Arcadia, which, by the way, is still the same beat, okay, because the show starts with We Got the Beat by the Go-Go's and ends with We Got the Beat by the Go-Go's. So, like... I don't know what the new beat is because it's the same song. Right. So it bears mentioning this is a Go-Go's jukebox musical. Um, I'm going to jump into production history like right away because it was also kind of a mess and might explain why this was, you know, the way it turned out. Um, So originally it first premiered in 2015 at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. um, And Jeff Witte, who's known for doing the book for Avenue Q, came up with the original concept and wrote the original libretto. and then, so it premiered there, New York Times, like, gave it a surprisingly strange review. Like, they were like, oh, yeah, like, the book was great, but the songs just, like, didn't work. Which, like, I guess it's kind of backwards for a jukebox musical, because normally in a jukebox musical, you go for the songs, and then the book sucks because they don't know how to integrate the songs. But then New York Times was like, yeah, now the songs, like, suck so much because the book is, like better so you realize how simple and like how simple the lyrics and rhymes in the songs are because also the book is written in iambic pentameter so um 
so yeah, but then after that, in 2016, um, they hired, they basically revamped the whole creative team. They hired a new director, um, Michael Mayer, who won a Tony for Spring Awakening and did a ton of other stuff. Um, he directed, I don't know what happened to Jeff Woody, but they basically brought in James Magruder to adapt his original libretto. So like they got rid of a lot of the iambic pentameter, but it's still like in Shakespearean English in verse, like it's very strange. Um, and they had no, 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 no. It's Shakespearean English. It's thee, thy, thou, thine in American accents. Right. It's the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's very disorienting. And then um, Tom Kitt, who basically just does like everything, um, also adapted the songs, which I guess he worked more into the show, maybe. Um, and so he did like orchestration, song arrangement, music supervisor, all of that. Um, and then, so yeah, so they did that. I guess they must have worked on it for like two years because we didn't see it again until um, 2018 in San Francisco in the spring. So they like that it's fun. It breaks boundaries. This was when um, Peppermint was brought on. Um, and so she's the first transgender actor to originate a principal role on Broadway. So she plays um, Pythio, the Oracle. Um, but yeah, so the San Francisco, and also like, I think, you know, it's not just San Francisco critics that write reviews, but they're all basically like, yeah, so we're still not sure why, or like, we're not sure that this works, like, you know, because you're taking um, this story from literally like Shakespearean times it's not by Shakespeare it's by um Sir Philip Sidney and this is still like Jeff Whitty's idea to marry these two and this epic poem called like Arcadia and so and this was like in the 1500s so you're taking this 1500 story you're giving it like Gogo's songs which is like late 1900s um <laughs> uh-huh. yep. and then you're like having them speak in modern American accents but speak Shakespearean English um, the choreography is also super modern it's by Spencer Liff of So You Think You Can Dance um, and so it's just like this weird mesh of things that like I think they it almost works but it's like one too many. Head Over Heels marketed itself as a laugh out loud love story like their website literally still says that like we are a laugh out loud love story um, and it's how they promoted it. It was, you know, colorful hearts everywhere. Um, but the only funny thing is like that juxtaposition between punk rock and old English, which seems so like elementary to me. The The producers were just like, let's throw some shit that don't belong together into one show so people will laugh because it looks weird, which is like really like lazy comedy, I think, because the songs aren't funny. They're, you know, punk rock songs. And like some right. of the delivery is funny. Like Pamela is pretty funny. But a lot of it isn't that funny. And then there's like a good amount of awkward sex jokes. But I laughed more at one-liners and like serious musicals. I probably laughed more in like the three minutes of Sincerely Me in Dear Van Hansen than I did in Head Over Heels. Like it wasn't that funny. And it definitely didn't like mix up the type of comedy I used. The whole thing was just like watch people in ball gowns headbang. <laughs> right. Um, also, it bears mentioning that when we saw this, it was in preview. So, like, some things could have changed from what we saw to, like, what the it final... Was? Yeah. Oh, well, it's still closed early, so... 
Yeah. Um, some things could have been changed from what we saw, but like judging from what I've seen of the reviews, like not like the overall structure probably stayed the same. Like, I don't know if they changed. We didn't see it very much. early in previews, though, right? No, we saw it like fairly late, but I remember it was previews because we wanted to get tickets because we were afraid that the prices would go up mm, after previews. Because it was Gwen Paltrow. Right. Yeah, I keep forgetting about that. Which makes so much sense because <laughs> if you think about it, it's the exact waste of money and disappointment as a $70 vagina egg. <laughs> Whatever. Anyways, it did not go up. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> I have a lot of problems with this. And I think the Go-Go's have good music. Um, I didn't really get to notice their music because the plot was so hectic Mm -hmm. that I literally, like, wasn't thinking about the music during the show. And then when I listened to the cast recording after the show, I was like, what? These songs were in the show? (laughs) But vocalists are good. I think the songs are good. But the problem is, like, punk rock – I don't know if this is punk rock in general because I don't know punk rock that well, right? Mm -hmm. But I listened to a lot of the Go-Go songs. And they're not very storytelling songs. Right. You know, like how Taylor Swift or maybe old Taylor Swift, like, brings you through, like, two months of her relationship. She, like, it's, like, there's very specific things happening. Like, she's walking down a street and then she's sitting on a couch and then she's dancing in the kitchen, right? Right. Go-Go's, like, don't really do that. They kind of, like, talk about one feeling at one moment in time. Um, yeah. Which makes – so, like, the songs are just songs and they don't really progress – the plot and you know i really don't like that because i hate like inefficient songs in musicals i think they're really Mm -hmm. pointless um so the use of the go-go song it just makes the entire musical seem very stagnant the whole time yes um agreed i think they did have a couple good ones um get up and go is when like they up and leave like basilius is like we gotta go and it's kind of used as a montage song which i think works really well vacation okay I have issues with vacation because it's so shoehorned in. Like, she's literally just on an island for one scene just so she can sing vacation because that's, like, one of their biggest songs, so it has to be in there. That's true, but it's so pretty. Like, apparently in the original – well, no, Vacation's a great song, and they have her, like – Mopsa, probably the best voice on the – my favorite voice on the show. Mopsa, like, um, Taylor Iman Jones, I think it is. Um, Yeah. I'm I'm like keeping an eye on her. Um but yeah, so Vacation in the original Oregon version, it was I think what it sounds like in the place of Get Up and Go was like them like leaving was when they sang Vacation and apparently it was like this sort of stripped down ballad version of it and people were like you cannot mess with Vacation like that. So then they like returned it to like the peppy song it is. I actually like some of the rearrangements probably just because i like theater music more than punk rock but like there's i love the enunciation i love being able to <laughs> shit, you know so i really like the rearrangements um especially for vacation also our lips are sealed i thought there's a really good rearrangement yeah vacation's used well in the scene that it's in but in the overall story it's like where did she get how did she get to this island why is she here she's surrounded by mermaids and sitting in this like venus clamshell like it it was just so many questions and that that's like they use all the set pieces for the that one song and then she like comes back and it's fine right also vision of nowness is the song that pythio uses before she like talks about her prophecy right um but 
It's like her, her like dramatic intro music. Right. But Vision of Nowness is not about a prophecy. So mm-hmm. Vision of Nowness is sung and then Pythio speaks the prophecy. And that just seemed so ridiculous to me. In any other musical that wasn't a jukebox musical, they totally would have wrote the prophecy into a song. Right. Like I was not a fan. That was just a poor use yeah. of time. <laughs> Mad About You and Heaven is a Place on Earth are, strictly speaking, not Go-Go songs. They're Belinda Carlisle songs. After the Go-Go's broke up, she, like, pursued a solo career. I mean, I feel like the intros and closings of each act were pretty solid numbers. Um, Like, We Got the Beat has its issues within the whole context. But, like, as an opening number, I thought it was pretty cool. Until you realize, like, because this was before you realize they're speaking in Shakespearean English. So it's like, oh, cool, this is a fun song. Um, but they are in Shakespearean clothing. I mean, yeah. Well, it's like it's quasi, weird. it's like quasi modern-ish Shakespearean clothing. It's really strange. I was like, I hope this is a dress-up party. Also, fun fact: the founding original two members of Go Go's had no musical background and could not play their instruments when they formed their band. That's actually really interesting because the Go Go's is known as the all the only all female band to write and play their own instruments. Yep. Um, so after the two people themselves kind of flopped, they started gathering other people that could play their instruments. So the later members actually knew what they were doing. Overall, very fast learning. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive, you know. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Also, okay. So this might play into how the story goes. Apparently, in the San Francisco version. Um, Mopsa was supposed to kind of act as a narrator, like she was supposed to take you through the story, but also all the reviews said she like didn't do that, like because she ended up in the story. So mm-hmm. I think this could have benefited from a narrator. I think because that box musicals usually get one. Right. And also like I feel like in this particular jukebox musical, they felt the need to use the whole song. But like a lot of biography musicals like tend to cut down songs like beautiful um the beginning of jersey boys they just have like snippets of songs actually yeah this i'm looking at the soundtrack now and all their songs are like two to four and a half minutes which is quite long yeah so they use the whole song so it's like you know stuff like vision of nowness um we could just like take half of that song or something like that could have just been like a ooh dramatic intro music for two lines and then we're moving on yeah I agree. And I think by doing that, they're kind of limiting their target audience to big Go-Go's fans Mm -hmm. as opposed to like anyone else. Right. And I don't think there is any like particularly good reason to use the Go-Go's music. Like they're good. Mm -hmm. And I guess they're like trailblazing as like the first all-female rock band that writes their own songs and everything. And like maybe it's like a statement. But they don't have songs that lend themselves to a musical or this musical in particular. You could have literally picked any other band that has, like, more than four love songs, which is literally every band. Right. Yeah. And so I don't – I couldn't really find out why they were used. I think this was another Jeff Whitty thing. It just said in an article that he had gotten rights to use their whole song catalog. And they, like, were on board with it. They weren't involved in the process, but, like, showed them the show. And they were like, yeah, this is great. And I think, like – like, it definitely was an ambitious undertaking to take this, like, super old text with this, like, relatively new music. That's true. There were two, like, done things. You know what? You know what we should talk about? We should talk about non-binary Musidorus. 
Okay, so he was the the two gay part. Also, wait, I need to point something out that Mr. Doris did not dress up as Wonder Woman because he wanted to. He was following the royal court through the forest, like lost his clothes or was freezing to death or something. I don't know. Then he passes by a bunch of skeletons and a bunch of dress up clothes. And then he finds out that it's a bunch of theater people that starved to death because they were so unsuccessful, which is a hilarious omen. Well, I think, like, the reason he changed his clothes was, like, he needed a disguise because, like, the the king, like, knew who he was and was like, I'm not going to have my daughter marrying some shepherd. Like, go away. Okay, so at the end of the show, um, the king's, like, you know, learning about acceptance and he's blessing everyone. He's like, cool, Pamela can be gay. Philoclea can marry the shepherd. This is wonderful. Him and his wife are chill again. Yep, they're chill. They got their romance back because they both wanted someone else. And he's like, I'm so excited to have my new son-in-law, Musadorus. And then Musadorus is like, but half the time I might be your daughter-in-law. And that was one too far for me. The whole time he was like, I mean, he was dressed as a woman, but he never really gave any indication that he like didn't feel like like a male like i don't know it just like seemed out of the blue and it wasn't like he was exploring his female side it was like hey i ran over these clothes and like i'm just gonna wear them now i think like if they had wanted that reveal at the end they could have built up to it and it would have been like less jarring and less like out of nowhere right oh pithio is actually mops's mom right because she like wasn't feeling appreciated or something and she was like i need to explore my other side and like also i'm an oracle so i'm gonna leave you like yeah right you're trans and you're an oracle but i don't know why she's a snake that was also confusing yeah so this also like did not get good reviews well it, it got surprisingly okay reviews because the like times didn't hate it i was very they annoyed didn't hate it but they didn't love it but here's the thing with head over heels it's like it should definitely be appreciated for the effort they put in. And all the actors were, like, fully throwing themselves into it. Like, they didn't even care, like, what, like whether or not it was good. They were like, we are for this. And that, like, there's, like, they, they should be respected for that, I guess. Um, but, and it definitely did some really good things for, I guess, the gay community. Like, gay Twitter and, like, that community was all over this. They loved it. I think it is sort of that same like very campy vibe um but like what frustrates me is like they could have done all of those things but they could have also made an actually good musical um like they could have just made it like just drop one or two of the gimmicks and like and like rewrite the story so that it's not so dependent on the music like it felt like they wrote the story around the music rather than putting the music where the story demanded it um and like if they had just done those it would have been such a better musical it still would have had all the like groundbreaking moments it did like first transgender person to originate a role on broadway bonnie milligan is like a um a larger actress and she's supposed to be like the most beautiful person um and it's like not even as satire it's like she's legitimately just supposed to be beautiful which is also like you know a good message um but the just the execution of the show was not i feel like a lot of the creators maybe weren't on the same page like i don't know a lot of it just was not there's plenty of good gay musicals out there 
Broadway right. is so gay. When we were at yeah. Coney, every single man that walked on stage thanked his husband. And I was like, cool. Another one, another one, another one. And then one some guy, guy said happy birthday to Judy Garland. Yeah. And then some guy thanked his wife. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> there are straight people in this room. I was like, what a shock. Here's the thing where we like, because we put prom and head over heels together. They're both like pretty gay. But prom just does it so much better because they normalize it. Like, we're starting to get to the point, I feel like, in culture where, like, everything that's gay or, like, LGBT or, you know, sort of groundbreaking, it's, like, good to recognize it. But we're also at the point where we kind of just want it to be normal. And the fact that it's normal is something to be celebrated more than the fact that it's, like, groundbreaking, you know? Okay, but also hot take, which you, like, may or may not agree with. I think if they tried to revive Head Over Heels in, let's say, like, 30 years, and they, like, redid the book a little, and, like, just kind of reworked a lot of it, I think it could be a really successful revival. I think they have to redo the book a lot. Yeah, like, so if, they, if they got a really good creative team better and just, like, reimagined it, because, like, you know, all the revivals now are really about, like, reimagining rather than just, like, putting it on again. But if they, How like, managed Bilbo to fans? get will be around 50 years but just now. cut all the songs in half <laughs> the songs are still decent songs i actually really like the songs a lot they more are. than i thought i would um Same. fix the book like you can still have them speak in verse but maybe not shakespearean verse i don't know but something to like mesh it more with the songs so that the sto- songs versus the book aren't so starkly contrasting i don't think they could take away the verse because um, oh, the poems like the like the dialogue, the words are so campy that if they said it, right, like 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 normal prose, it would be really weird. Okay, then I don't know. I don't know how they could do it with the song. That I'm sure there's someone out there who's like you know a genius waiting to be discovered that could fix this. Well, I hope she works on something else. <laughs> but. In 30 years, in 30 years, we'll have, like, whole other generation of new Broadway people, like. But, I mean, it was cheap. Seats were available. It came out during the summertime, which is, like, high tourist season. At some point, it was playing, like, 30% capacity, though. Like, near the end. Yeah, like, it had, like, it planned so that all things would be in its favor. But didn't work because it was not good. Yeah. But yeah, so like, I mean, <laughs> I think it could be a good revival. I'd have to be, like, the opening night reviews would have to be amazing <laughs> for me to watch it again. It'd have to be, like, unanimously amazing. But anyway, shall we do our closing thoughts on Head Over Heels? I'd be really curious to see no one ever do it again. I thought it was going on tour. It's not going on tour. A lot of people really liked it um, and saw it like tons of times. Questionable musicals get cult followings. That's true. It didn't come together. They could have done more. They didn't. I hope, (laughs) yeah. I hope Spencer Lift does get a Tony nomination for choreography, but that's the only thing I can see them winning. Or not even winning, but getting nominated for. Um, Maybe costumes. Maybe. There's a lot of stuff coming out in the spring, so don't see it. It's not out anymore. You don't have the option. (laughs) 
Head Over Heels, the rock band for the musical, was also an all-female band, female music director, all that. So, Oh, like the, for keeping in line with the that. orchestra people, the people in the pit? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. It's mm-hmm. really cool. No one will ever see this again. It's fine. <laughs> cool. So that concludes everything. If you want to hear more from us, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at BottomlessBWay, B-W-A-Y, or email us at BottomlessBWay at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Bye! Bye!